Good morning. Uh, this morning, I want to want to challenge our church uh, in the area of evangelism. In the area of evangelism, our men's group's been going through a study on evangelism on Wednesday nights, and uh, there's there's much that's said in churches today about evangelism. It's it's a it's a topic that's discussed probably often. Uh, there's conferences on evangelism. There's strategies on evangelism. There's books you can read about evangelism. There's events you can go to about evangelism. Uh, I even heard that at some point evangelism exploded somewhere. And uh, those of you who went through the evangelism explosion era, um, man, it's it's there's a lot of talk about evangelism. The question that I want us to answer today is, how can we at the Vine be effective in evangelism? How can we be an effective evangelistic church? And so I would invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to camp out in verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a, this is a book that is written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he writes this book. It's a, it's a follow-up to his first letter, the book of 1 Corinthians, which if, uh, if the Lord tarries, I, I'm pretty sure we'll be going through that book extensively uh, coming, coming real soon. And um, in his first letter, it's... There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of rebuke in it because they weren't really living the life that God had called them to, and uh, and so there, you know, Paul spends a lot of time correcting them. Well, in the first part of Second Corinthians, he's a lot kinder. You know, he had to be real harsh with them, and now he's he starts off with compassion and comfort, and uh, and he really challenges this church uh, in, in several areas, and probably the most doctrinal and most theological part of this book is in Second Corinthians chapter five. And so I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. We'll read through verse 21, and then we're probably going to backtrack just a little bit. So let's read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if we are to really understand this passage, uh, it starts in verse 11 with the word therefore. Does anybody know why, what you need to do when you come across a therefore in the Bible? What's the therefore, therefore? That's right. So we usually backtrack a little bit. So let's do that for just a moment before we get to the main text here. Uh, 
so Paul is writing this in this chapter, and he's writing about uh, the the earthly tent. Uh, he's talking about how he lives in a uh, in a body that is just temporary, and if it's destroyed, it's it's not that big a deal. He's talking about the persecutions that he went through, and part of part of Paul's letter to the Second Corinthians is also. Uh, you see those first few verses in the verses we read about commending himself to them. It's almost it's almost as if some were in the church trying to doubt Paul's apostleship. And so Paul's kind of defending himself, but at the same time, man, he's just preaching the gospel, right? And so he's laying it on thick in the gospel. And, uh, and, he, and he writes uh, this, and we, we look at Paul's life. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that he says he had even despaired for his life. And later in the letter, he, he, he writes in, in chapter 11, verse 23, that he was in danger of death constantly. Why would, why would Paul keep boldly proclaiming the gospel if he was in danger of death, if he was facing the reality that at any moment his life could be taken from him? We, we could even ask the same question about uh, soldiers who serve in our, in our military. Why would they put themselves in such danger? Well, it's because they believe in a cause, right? Uh, you know, because they believed in a cause. Do they do it for the money? No. They fight for freedom, the welfare of their family and their fellow citizens. They, they, they fight for freedom for us. Paul was in a different type of battle. He was in a spiritual battle. He was, he was fighting to free souls of men that were in bondage to evil. He was passionate about this battle. And, and that word passion that we use today, it literally used to mean suffering. We talk about the passion of the Christ. Paul was passionate about it so much that he was willing to suffer so that the gospel would go forth. 2 Corinthians 5.4, he says, while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. How could Paul continue in this life of preaching the gospel and facing constant struggle and trial? He had the Spirit of God as a guarantee. He had the Spirit. Paul knew about life in the Spirit. He knew that one day this life would be over. This temporary tent that we dwell in would fade away. It would be swallowed up. And then and only then would real life begin. You know, I, I listen to a lot of people talk about how they don't want to be a Christian yet because they want to live life before they become a Christian, as if coming to Christ is the beginning of death for you. When the Scripture clearly teaches that life only comes through Jesus Christ. And it only just begins. I don't know about you, but I've, I've never been as happy as I am now as a Christian. That doesn't mean my circumstances are always the way I would like them to be. But man, when you have a Savior and the Spirit of God who leads you, that's life. Amen? So God gave the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a pledge, as a down payment for Paul, and he knew this. He knew that he would be redeemed completely one day. And if the Lord tarries each of us, we will face death, and God's promise of eternal life with him will begin. And while we're waiting, he has not left us to dwell alone. We have the Holy Spirit. So Paul was in tune with the Spirit. Now, how is it that Paul could face experiences that were near death on a regular basis? The Holy Spirit was his comforter, his guide, his counselor. And this morning, I want to share with you four truths uh, from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21 about effective evangelism that will help us as we go out and we evangelize to uh, face even trials and circumstances that we may be uncomfortable with. 
but we can still proclaim the cross boldly. And the first is this. We must be created in Christ. To be effective at evangelism, we've got to be created in Christ. We must understand the gospel. Paul spends a lot of time in this verse in the gospel. In verse 11, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord. What what does Paul know? What does he know? He knows that life is temporary. It's just a tent. That one day all these things are going to pass away. One day he's going to be in heaven with God. But while he's here, he has the spirit guaranteeing that and, and guiding him. And he knows the gospel. And he has surrendered his life to the gospel. If we're to be effective at making uh, God's glory known to those around us and to all nations, we must know and surrender our lives to the gospel. So he spends a lot of time talking about the gospel. Let's look at it. What is the gospel in these verses that he shares with us? Verse 14. He says, one died for all, therefore all died. Verse 15, that we might live for him who for their sake died and was raised on their behalf. Jesus took their place. He was the substitute for them. This is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our lives, sinful as they were, yet in in that sinfulness, Jesus comes and he gives his life for us. He dies for us. And everybody said, Verse 18, and this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So, so we see that not only did he die, but his death did something. His death reconciles us to himself. We see that again in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So the question we must ask about this gospel that Paul's preaching here is, what is this reconciliation? This, the, the glorious good news of the gospel is that the sin-devastated relationship between lost sinners and the holy God can be restored. If that doesn't excite you, you need to press the excitement button in your life. Those who are sin-devastated, filled with unrighteousness, unreconcilable in the world's eyes, can be reconciled and restored to God. I think one of the reasons people don't get excited about the gospel, why you didn't all just jump up and shout amen, is maybe you don't fully understand how far off you were or how far off you are this morning if you're not a believer. Maybe you don't understand how deep and wide the chasm is that separates your sinful life from a holy God. You see, God's perfect, infinite, righteous justice demands the punishment of all who violate His law. All who violate His law. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know who the all is? Amen. It's us. All of us have transgressed God's law. God's standard is perfection. His holiness demands it. There's no way we can stand before God with sin. And yet as we stand before the bar of His justice, we stand as helpless, guilty sinners, unable to satisfy God or to change our own condition. I know this may be news to some, but you're a sinner. You've transgressed against God's law and offended the Creator God. We've all transgressed His law. There, this, is, this is no small thing. Our sin separates us from a holy God. But praise God, He doesn't leave us that way. Listen to Paul in two other passages about reconciliation. Romans 5, he says, For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Listen to Colossians 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
That's us. Amen. We better claim it, right? He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. And everybody said, I don't think you guys are excited enough about this. Am I not passionate enough about it? Is the heat getting us down this morning? Hey, man, listen, you were lost, sinful, sin devastated, incapable of changing your condition, and the God of all creation made a way for you. That's a little better. Amen. God made a way for you. That is the gospel. Helpless, hopeless. Yet God made a way. And I want to show you in our text that this reconciliation is both by the will of God and through obedience of faith. Look at verse 18. Back in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. It says, this is from God. All this is from God. Notice it's not from man. It's not initiated by man. So who reconciled us to himself? There's, there's no talk of how we come to God first to be reconciled. All the personal nouns and pronouns and, uh, that are in action in this passage about reconciliation, they belong to God himself. Now, some people describe in their life when they came to Christ that all of a sudden a, a light switch went off or, or they began to understand the gospel and, and God opened their eyes or their ears so that they could hear and see the gospel. Let me ask you the question this morning. Who turns on the lights? Who opens eyes? Who opens ears? Praise God. It is God himself who does that. All this is from God. He's the one who initiates salvation in our life. We don't just stumble upon it and figure it out. So how how is it also through obedience of faith? then? if this is from God, well, look at verse 20. Paul says, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Notice Paul calls for a response to this gospel that he's preaching. How can he tell someone to be reconciled to God if God is the one doing the reconciling? Well, he he calls for this response, and the response is a response of faith. It's a response of faith, obedience, faith. We call for a response to the gospel because we, uh, those who are being reconciled, must respond by faith. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, you know it, will be saved. How then will they call on him if they not believed? How will they believe in him whom they not never heard and how will they hear without someone preaching so we preach and they respond they call on the name of the lord notice the response they call on the name of the lord and there's another response in that same chapter verse 16 but they have not all obeyed the gospel for isaiah says lord who has believed what he has heard from us so there's two responses when the gospel is heard there's the response of faith and surrender we understand the gospel we place faith in jesus christ And then there's this response that is not obedience. They have not all obeyed the gospel. So the question is, how do we know if we're being reconciled to God or not? I can give you a good hint. If you're hearing the gospel and you are being drawn to trust in Jesus and to follow him, you're likely right now, maybe even in this moment, being reconciled to God. You hear the gospel and you respond by faith. Notice, notice there's no, and I don't, don't take this wrong, but notice there's, there's no magical spell here. There's no flopping around on the floor like, like something happened to you. There's a simple hearing of the gospel and a calling on the name of the Lord, a response to the Lord. Now all who hear, not all who hear will respond in faith. And our job is to preach, and God's job is to open hearts. 
Amen? Those whose hearts are open will respond with faith in Jesus Christ. We see more of the gospel in our text. Look at verse 21. Probably my favorite passage in the whole scripture. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We talked about reconciliation, but how does God, how does Jesus reconcile us to God? Well, the scripture says he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. The scripture says he knew no sin. Listen, uh, our, our family during devotion time recently have been going through the gospel primer. If you've never read the gospel, read, read the gospel primer, it's on the table out there. I think we have some copies left. But basically the idea is, man, we continue to talk about the gospel. And as we continue to talk about the gospel, it affects all these areas of our life. And so my question to our children is, what is the gospel? And their response is typical. It's the good news, right? So what gospel means, man, praise God that they know that. The gospel is the Bible. The gospel is the word of God. Well, what, what is the Bible and the word of God? What does it teach us that the gospel is? Well, most people would respond, the gospel is that Jesus died for sinners. And that is a fabulous explanation of the gospel. But we also see there's more to it. Jesus, in this passage, knew no sin. So he didn't just die. Something happened before he died. He lived. Amen. And not just any life, but he lived a life that was sinless. He knew no sin. You know, you ask the typical person in our culture if they are going to heaven, and their response is typically yes. You ask them why, and they say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person compared to, you know, those really bad people out there. Amen? And I tell folks, that God's standard is not pretty good. His standard is perfection. And you know what their response usually is? Well, nobody's perfect. Oh, my friend, how wrong could they be? For there was a perfect one. There was and is a perfect one. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus knew no sin. This is a very important part of the gospel. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Amen? He's been tempted like you are, yet he was without sin. And he is the only one who is without sin. Thus, he is the only possible sacrifice for sin. You hear many proclaim that Jesus died for you. Well, he first lived for you. Amen? That's part of the gospel. Don't leave that part out. Jesus, the perfect sinless Savior. All have sinned and fall short. Only one who knew no sin of his own could qualify to bear the full wrath of God against the sins of others. So when someone offers their good works to God as a means of salvation, they can find that their good works are, as Joe mentioned earlier, but filthy rags before God. Because they're tainted by their sin. Our response our response is all we have is Christ. All we have is Christ. And I've often seen different strategies of people witnessing to folks. And a lot of times they'll ask the question, hey, man, if you were to stand before God today and he asked you why I should let you into heaven, what would your response be? I don't think that's going to happen. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture that we're going to stand before God and he's going to ask us that question. But hypothetically, if that were the question, our culture's answer would be, well, I was a pretty good person. But what should our answer be? Jesus took my sin. Jesus Christ. If, I, if, I, if I'm getting in, it's because of Jesus. 
Not anything I did. You see, he knew no sin. He knew no sin. Why? He knew no sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God. Children, if you're taking notes, you want to write this word down. This is a word that will be important for the rest of your life. Adults, maybe you don't know it. You might want to write it down too. It's called imputation. It's a big word, I-M-P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N. All right? You might want to write that one down. You know what it means? It means something has been reckoned to you that was not yours, that you had nothing to do with. You know, when you were born, you were born into what? Sin. Adam's sin was imputed to you. You were born into sin. And you were separate from God. But praise God, He didn't leave us that way. Amen? Because Jesus knew imputation as well. The second Adam. And He imputes not to us sin, but He imputes His righteousness to us. So that when we stand before God now, we can stand. Why? Because of how awesome we are? No, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, His Son and our Savior. Man, that was a good place to say amen. You missed it. Amen. We can stand before God because of his righteousness. Amen. He is the only one who can give us that that standing. So to be effective in evangelism, we must first be created in Christ. We must understand the gospel. Do you understand it this morning? I hope so. Secondly, to be effective in evangelism as a church, we must be changed by Christ. Not just created in Christ, but changed by Christ. This is the result of the gospel. Look at verse 17 in our text. I want you to see this change. Uh, actually, start in verse 15. It says, and he died for all that those who live might what? No longer live for themselves. So what were we doing before Christ? We were living for ourselves. Some of us still struggle with that. Amen. That remaining sin is tough. But here it says, so that we might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we were once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. And then here's the verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What God completes is completely done. Amen. And so we see that we are changed by Christ. So the gospel is Jesus living and laying down his life, his righteous, holy life for our sinfulness. And this is a big event. It's not just for no means. It's not just so that we get a place in heaven. There's something uh, more to it. It's not to be taken lightly. It's to deliver us from sin, not just in future tense, but even right now. So that we no longer are slaves to sin, but we are slaves to his righteousness. And so the old has been made new. Our lives are transformed by this gospel that we know and understand. And only the gospel can create this life change. I'm perplexed at all the things we put our trust in to change our lives. I was I was heard an illustration one time of a of an old farmer who went to town and uh him and his family had never really been to town a whole lot. Well they went to a department store and his wife was enthralled by all the, the different clothes and things and him and his sons were enthralled by this mechanism. It was a door that opened People would go in, the doors would close, the doors would open, more people would come out. And at one point, this elderly lady hunched over, she walks into the the uh, the doors, this mechanism, and it closes behind her. And a few minutes later, it, it opens up, and this young and vibrant, beautiful young lady walks out. And the boys look at their pa, and they're like, Pa, man, what is this thing? And he says, man, I don't know, but go get your ma. 
It's just an elevator, right? We we know there's no there's no magic. There's no trick to the Christian life. There's no instant transformation. It takes work. It takes hard work. Listen, only the gospel has the power to transform. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to transform. There's no box. There's no magic pill. You know, I'm surprised and perplexed at the things we put our faith and trust in to, to, to bring about life change from, from self-help books to self-help preachers to um, from speaking it into existence and claiming it. How about read it, believe it, and practice it? How about walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the desires of your flesh? What about just obeying the Scriptures? Why does it have to be some crazy, hokey, magical thing? God has given us His Word. And He's given us His Spirit as a pledge. He's given us His Spirit as a comforter and a guide. Walk in the Spirit. It's another amen spot. Praise God, we can walk in the Spirit. and we Listen, when we do, when we understand the magnitude of what Christ did for us, it should change our lives. We're not just created in Christ, we're changed by Christ. Our understanding and surrendering to the Gospel changes. Listen, Paul found this life change. I want you to hold your spot in 2 Corinthians and I want you to go back to Acts chapter 26. Listen to what happens to Paul in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, this is Paul standing before King Agrippa and Festus and he's he is again doing his normal his normal thing. He's preaching the gospel and he says in verse 9 in, in chapter 26 of Acts before the king, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in the raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul didn't sound like a nice guy, did he? In, connection, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen uh, me you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not dis disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus. So he had an encounter with Jesus, Listen to what happens. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repeat, repentance. And now he's standing before the king, proclaiming the gospel. Do you see the life transformation that Paul describes here? He was on a road that was persecuting Christians and believers, and now he's a believer. He's a Christian who is fulfilling exactly what God has called him to do. There's life change when we come to know Christ. When, when God knocks us down on the road to Damascus, so to speak, we get up and we go do what the Lord says to do. So 
Paul had an encounter with Jesus. The old things passed away. The new things came. His view of Jesus was different. This is where back in 2 Corinthians in our text, we see in verse 16, he says, I used to regard, uh, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. What he's saying there is we once looked at Jesus as just another man, as just a, just a false prophet, a false Messiah. That's the way we looked at Jesus. He was just a radical. He was a zealot. But we, we view him this way no longer. There was a change in his view of Jesus. What about you this morning? How, how do you see Jesus? Was he, was he just a good teacher? Was he just a, a, an extraordinary man? Or is he really God's son as he proclaims to be? Is he the promised Messiah? Do you know the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah? Many are still waiting for a Messiah. What about you? Are you still waiting for something to happen? Or is he the King of kings and Lord of lords in your life? You may claim that he's the Messiah, the King and Lord in your life, but do you know how to really tell if you really believe that? You're changed by Christ. Just look in the mirror. Just take a good glance at your life. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has died for your salvation, then you will look different than the world. It changes you. Listen, how can... How can we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power over sin and yet live in a way that completely denies that? We look different when we come to Christ. We are, we are not of this world. We're just in this world. God called us to a new standard, and that's just, that standard is holiness. I've read evangelism statistics. For what they're worth, many of them say that less than 5% of Christians actually share their faith on a regular basis. And a large percent have never shared the gospel with someone else. You know what I think a lot of people don't share their faith? Most people would say it's fear. We're scared. I don't think that's the answer. I think it may be because they know their lifestyle doesn't line up with the message that they're preaching about. I had a pastor friend who used to say, your walk talks and your talk talks, but does your walk talk louder than your talk talks? I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I don't, I, but I would say this. I'm not suggesting that our talk, that one talks louder than the other, but that our lives are consistent. That they line up with the gospel. That you not just say you're a Christian, but you actually walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. I know a lot of this may seem elementary today, but man, does our world need to hear this message. That the gospel changes your life. You're not the same. Paul says, hey, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? No, may it not be. If we sin, does God still forgive us? Yes, praise God for His grace. But let's walk in the Spirit. Let's walk in holiness. Part of this changed life is that you do speak of the gospel. So we've seen that we're created in Christ. We've seen that we're changed by Christ. And now we see that we are commissioned by Christ. We are commissioned by Christ. This is the purpose of this gospel. Verses 18 through 20. Look at it with me. Verse 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Trusting to you, us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God 
making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We not just born again, we're not just created in Christ, we're not just changed, but we are commissioned. He has given us work to do. Amen? You have work to do as a Christian. The word of reconciliation is this. Jesus died for our sins. Hey, listen. Do you understand that Jesus died for your sins? If you understand it, don't you think that should make a difference? And shouldn't you tell people about it? Amen? So he commissions us. Verse 20, it says, we are ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? Basically, this is someone who represents someone on behalf of that person. Like, we send ambassadors to different nations to represent represent the United States. They go there and they literally speak on our behalf. And here we are called ambassadors for Christ. So we represent Christ. Listen, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You represent Christ if you're a believer. I remember as a, as a young man, as a teenager, my parents would tell me when I went out with friends or went on trips, you remember where you came from, boy. You remember what family you came from. You remember that everything you do reflects on your family. You better represent us well. Don't drag our name through the mud. Have you ever heard those things? You know, we have a common last name. There's a lot of Joneses in this world. <clears throat> but I can't tell you the times that I've been referred to uh, as Galen's son. My dad's name was Galen Jones. My dad was a great man. He loved God and he loved his family. And I knew that I represented him everywhere I went. I was even proud when someone said, hey, that's Galen's boy. He loved me and I loved him greatly. And I wanted to do right so that nothing could ever be said bad about my dad. My dad, however, was just a man. I have another father. And I am proud to be called his son. He loves me and I love him. His love compels me as it did to Paul in verse 14. He said our, his love compels us. And I represent him here this morning as one of his ambassadors to speak to you. And I don't want to do anything that would defame the name of my father in heaven. My father has commissioned me and he's commissioned you just as he did the disciples in Matthew 28 to go preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. You are commissioned by God. You are his ambassador. What motivates us in this mission, we, we just saw it in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us or controls us. It, we're motivated when we understand how much our God loves us you've experienced his awesome love how could you not want everyone to know that amen hey listen anything exciting happens in your life don't you just want to keep it hid to yourself no man you're picking up phone or cell phone or typing it on facebook or texting it with your thumbs some of you are texting it like this because you can't wait to stop on the side of the road or get somewhere you got to let somebody know something exciting happened what happens when the gospel comes into your life? Hey, man, you know, this weekend, you know, I was I was dying going to hell, but Jesus saved me. Guess I'll tell somebody about it. I mean, really? Don't you don't don't you just want to get on Facebook today if you have it or, or Twitter or whatever other social media networks are out there? I mean, listen, your life has been transformed by the gospel. OK, you went from death 
to life. You went from bound to hell to having a glorious heavenly home. Man, that ought to excite you. And we ought to tell people about it. Amen? And so it compels us to tell others. So we're not only created in Christ and changed by Christ and commissioned by Christ, but finally we're committed to Christ. Now this is where we jump into chapter 6 for just a moment. I see all you waving your hands out there like you're hot. We'll, we'll close up in just a second. 2 Corinthians 6, listen to Paul's life and see if you can find any ounce of commitment by him. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you to receive the grace of God, to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I would say that to you out there today. Now is the favorable time of the Lord. Right now, you can respond to Christ today. Amen? It's the acceptable time. The acceptable year of the Lord today is the day of salvation. All right. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. The gospel changes us and it brings us to a place of commitment. Paul is preaching the gospel facing all this drama in his life just I, I challenge you to go home and try to figure out which one of those you've faced since you came to christ surely there are some but have you faced them all paul said man i've been through all this and he's not saying that so you can boast in who he is but he's saying man listen this call to christ is going to cost us something it's not just a get out of hell free card this is the reality that our lives are changing we will face hardships we can't do it by ourselves. We need Jesus. Listen, there are our brothers and sisters in Christ right now. I know you hear, you've probably heard this all your life, but really, literally, right now, are dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's just a little hot in here today. I mean, how hard is it on us? You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay the hardships you face, but our Christian liberties, even in our in our country, are being taken away from us regularly, or challenged at the least. And we must be prepared and committed to Christ no matter what may come. Paul is a great example of this. No matter what happened to Paul, Paul stayed committed. God preserved Paul to the end. So Paul is a great example to us, but he's not our only example. The real example is Jesus Christ, who the Scripture says could have called down 10,000 angels, yet he went to the cross for you and for me. That's commitment. And that's the type of commitment that he's called us to. And that's the type of commitment that we saw in those 12 disciples who he left the message of reconciliation with. Do you realize that? Effective evangelism happens when we're created in Christ, we're changed by Christ, we're commissioned by Christ, and we're committed to Christ. And I've had friends ask me, and this is where we'll close, what is your strategy for evangelism at the vine? What, what do you guys do for evangelism? And I want to share with you right now our strategy 
of evangelism at the vine. Everybody ready? Kids, you got your pens ready? This is our strategy. God and us. God and us. What do you mean? Well, God is calling people to himself, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. So, in essence, we're trusting God to save people. We can't manufacture salvations at the vine, but what we can do is we can be his ambassadors. We can go and preach the gospel. So what do we do at the vine? Listen, we are his strategy. He left the gospel in the hands of 12 men. Sinners, tax collectors, former farmers and fishermen. And me and you have the gospel today. Throughout generations, it has carried on. You know why? Because nothing can stop what God starts. What he completes is completely done. He's going to finish it. The scripture says he's coming back one day, but it's when the gospel's preached to all nations. And so we're called to go out and preach this gospel. We are his strategy. So what do we do at the vine? We preach the gospel. This morning, I pray that you've heard the gospel. Last week, I pray that you heard the gospel. The week before that, gospel. The week before that, gospel. We're preaching out of books like Ruth and, and, and Old Testament books where Jesus hadn't even came yet. Yet it's pointing forward to Jesus. Why? Because the scripture is about Jesus and we're going to preach the gospel. So part of our strategy at the Vine Church is to preach the gospel and for you to come and hear the gospel, to be encouraged, to be challenged. We sing the gospel at the Vine. Praise God for Mark and, and Megan who come and they bring uh, these, these songs that, that aren't just aren't just songs about, you know, waving your hands in the air and having a good time. And they're not just songs that you hear on the radio. They're deep gospel truth songs. Amen? We hear the God in Christ alone. My hope is found. Man, we sing the gospel at the vine. We hope that everything we do is about the gospel. We preach it. We sing it. We talk about the gospel. I hope when you got here this morning, somebody talked to you about Jesus and what God did in their life this morning. We, we talk about the gospel not just before, but during and after the service. Man, I've never been a part of a church who stayed hour and a half to two hours after church and talked about Jesus and the gospel. It happens here. If you scoot out early, I'm not... Not, don't, don't take me as getting on to you or anything. But man, you miss out on about an hour and a half of gospel where we talk about Jesus and what he's doing in our lives. We Listen, we love football, but we love Jesus more, all right? We love Jesus more. We pray the gospel. Hopefully in our prayers you hear that, that we pray the gospel. We pray that others will hear the gospel. Tonight, we're going to invite everyone to come back i encourage you challenge you to come back tonight as we even even in the heat we're going to leave the air on all day it'll maybe it'll be cool by the time you get back here this evening and we're going to pray that people would hear and know the gospel we pray that god will use us to tell others about the gospel that's right it doesn't just happen in the four walls or the many walls of this church it happens in our lives we show hospitality to our neighbors who live next door to us. They, they, you know, things changed years ago. Used to, houses had really big porches. Why? Because people would come and sit and drink coffee together. Now, the front of the house is a big, huge garage. Man, we, we, we hope that we can get down the driveway, push the button in just enough time so we don't even have to slow down, go into the garage, push the door behind us so it closes, so we don't have to talk to anybody. Man, get to know your neighbors. I challenge you to know your neighbors and show hospitality toward them. Cut their grass for them every once in a while, unless they're really particular. Don't do it if they're, that's another story for another time. 
So we, we show hospitality to our neighbors. We, so we, why do we do that? So we can be nice people and be known as good, pretty good? No, so we can share the gospel with them. Eventually, they're going to wonder why you're so crazy. And you have an opportunity to share the gospel. And we live holy lives at work and at play in order to gain an opportunity to share the gospel. We pray and send people to India to proclaim the gospel. We, we give so Mario and Paola can go to Spain and proclaim the gospel. We live out the gospel through our deeds and our words so that people hear the gospel and are born again. Listen, our strategy for evangelism is you. We know God is working. He's drawing people unto Himself and He calls us His ambassadors. You and me. So let's go and represent Him well in our world. So I urge you this morning to take serious the call to make Jesus known to the world. If you're a believer, you are commissioned to go. The question is, are you committed? And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I hope you've heard the gospel. Hear it again. Jesus died to save sinners. Before He died, He lived. He lived. The Scripture says He didn't He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He came down and He dwelt among us. He lived a perfect, sinless life. They persecuted Him and tortured Him, hung Him on a cross, where the Scripture says He died for the sins of the world. The veil was torn. And you and I, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, can have life here and life thereafter in Jesus Christ. How do, you, how do you get that? You're hearing it. Believe it. Call on the name of the Lord this morning. Call on the name of the Lord. And for the rest of us, let's continue to urge people to call on the name of the Lord. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you that we can say that we love you. And we know that in and of ourselves, we wouldn't be able to say that. But the scripture tells us in 1 John that you first loved us. And you demonstrated your love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And Jesus, we can, we can take our sin. You can take our sin upon yourself. And you can give us righteousness. May we not just know that, but may we trust it. May it change us, God. May it challenge us. May it cause us to go and tell the world about Jesus Christ. So may we take the commission serious and may we be committed to it. In Jesus' name.